Hello and welcome to the Wagtails podcast. My name is Megan Corcoran and I'm the director of the Wagtail Institute. In this podcast, I invite some pretty cool people to come and have a conversation with me on all things trauma, healing, education and well-being. I started this podcast as I realized some of the biggest learning that has happened in my career has been through meeting really great people that are working in the field and having great conversations with them. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Brunzel, the Director of Education at Berry Street. Tom is a lifelong teacher and a lifelong learner who is really passionate about trauma-informed positive education. In this episode, we talk a lot about wellbeing science and trauma-informed practice, and we hear a little bit about Tom's journey as a teacher and moving across to Australia to really work on the Berry Street education model. We hope you enjoy it. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Wagtails podcast. I'm so excited this morning. I actually have Dr. Tom Brunzel joining me, um, which is an absolute privilege and pleasure. So welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks for having me, Megan. I'm excited to be here. Um, so, Tom, I would love for everyone just to know who is Dr. Tom Brunzel. Tough question. Uh, <laughs> I am. I, I always like saying I'm a teacher at heart, and I feel like everything that I have done since my time in the classroom has always been centered on students and helping young people who have struggled in the classroom. Uh, so when I say teacher, I think of things through classroom behavior, routines, transitions, and then that lifts up into the work that we do with adults and school staff and uh, education leaders across the country. And you've been on quite a journey, I think. Um, we met, it would have been over 10 years ago now. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'm sure people are picking up there's an accent here as well. So you weren't born in Australia. You you came to Australia with a bit of a purpose. Um, just wondering if you want to talk about your journey into like what you do now and and yeah, went why you came to Australia. Yes, I want our audience to know that you and I have known each other for years and years and years. Um, and so we, I know we've supported each other for so many of those years. Um, so I moved to Australia 13 years ago uh, and I was born in Vietnam, raised in Los Angeles. So that's where my accent comes from. And uh, I arrived in Victoria from New York City where I was a teacher and leader for many years. But I distinctly remember that you and I met each other on my first day of work. I drove down to the Noble Park campus of the Berry Street School and there you were and there I was. And we looked at each other and thought, what are we doing? We're gonna <laughs> do our best. <laughs> I love that. I didn't realize I actually met you on your first day of work. There you yeah. go. Yeah. yeah. And the, the second day for those of us, uh, for those of us out there that know the Berry Street campuses, my second day of work went to Morwell, to the Morwell campus of the Berry Street School. And I just have to say, at time of recording, we're all celebrating because tomorrow we're going to celebrate the 20th birthday, the 20th anniversary of the Berry Street campuses. Wow, that is crazy because I remember the 10th birthday. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Congratulations. You know, congratulations to all of us, our staff that past and present and our emerging staff out there. We're excited to to celebrate with our community uh, tomorrow. Oh, that's so good. How is everyone yeah. celebrating? What's happening? 
Well, we are doing a gathering and also we're showing off, which is pretty amazing. We're going to be showing off our new campus, which has been purposely renovated to support the needs of our young people in Mary Warren. So uh, we opened this new campus uh, approximately a year ago and change. And it was really an opportunity to take what we've learned through all of our research and practice and community of practice friends out there to think what are the kinds of things that our young people really, and I'm going to use this heavy handed word, uh, what do they deserve? What do we owe them as a community? I mean, these are young people who are struggling due to systemic influences, like I like to say, like we're never blaming them. Um, but we also realized to support their education, we could do some really cool things with architecture and uh, sensory spaces and the way that we really support the transition from class to class. So all of that has emerged in our new Nary Warren campus. Amazing. Um, so Tom, I know there'll be people listening that um, may not know much about the Berry Street Schools. Um, so I would love for you to maybe just describe what is the Berry Street School and who goes to the Berry Street School? Yeah, totally. And of course, uh, audience members, our friend Megan could also answer these questions because uh, she's uh, she's being very hosty and very honest right now. So uh, Megan, anything I miss, I would love to be Well, look, Tom, to be honest, I haven't had someone come in and like, you know, from Berry Street yet. So it's a good yeah, chance for us awesome. both to talk about Berry Street. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah. So uh, we have, both Megan and I have been and are part of Berry Street's legacy. So we are 140 years in Victoria. Victoria. We are primarily focused in our therapeutic and family services centered upon out-of-home care and out-of-home care concerns. And that also means that uh, I have the privilege of working with a fleet of social workers, clinicians, psychologists, family violence support teams, uh, infant mental health teams. And currently, I'm the director of education. And uh, that means that we have taken what we've learned through our own campuses, and I think I've mentioned two of the campuses. Uh, the other two are in Ballarat and Shepparton in Victoria. If you are listening beyond Victoria, that's really spread out across uh, regional Victoria. And then we have taken the strategies and research that's emerged from, from our four campuses, and that has become the Berry Street education model. And now I lead that team. And uh, surprise, surprise, and it surprised me, our BSEM, Berry Street education model team, is now turning 10 next year. Wow. So it's been a decade since we have turned externally to help campuses much like the Berry Street School across the country and mainstream campuses. And now we also help early childhood staff as well. Amazing, so much happening. Yeah, so Tom, I do recall, I recall meeting you. I just had no idea it was your first day of work when it we did really meet. Was. <laughs> it really was. But before was. before we met, there was no such thing as the Berry Street education model, essentially. No, and no. Um, if I'm honest, like we were running quite blind sometimes at our campuses, doing whatever we thought organically should work for them and working together with a bunch of cool professionals to try our best to create something that would work. But honestly, if I... Like I would like to acknowledge sort of what you have done and what you have brought to to the Berry Street schools and and to schools on a broader context as well is with your work with BSEM. It's pretty well, remarkable and pretty you. huge. <laughs> well, the the love fest is clearly going to continue in this conversation because um, 
I just know that when I moved here, I found just such hardworking people, including yourself, and we were doing our best. And I will say what has not changed um, is our values and the way that we prioritize the needs and strengths of young people. What has changed over so many years and so much uh, trying and experimentation and failure and trying again is we are building the evidence and we're building into the evidence of what we think can really work. And that is just through a decade or 20 or 20 years of hard work. Um, and one of the things that I have always considered since I started at Berry Street is how could we relook at every aspect of what's happening on this campus through a therapeutic lens? And that has a lot of names, right? I'm sure we'll talk about in this conversation the idea of trauma-informed practice or well-being informed or or, or uh, differentiated learning uh, or uh, individualized learning. But all of this for me is thinking, look, we are not, we as educators are not therapists, but everyone, no matter what your job is, can be therapeutically informed. And so that's what we strive to do for our young people. Mm, which I think is so powerful so powerful and so important as well because ultimately we know these young people absolutely and i'm going to use your word again deserve uh to have access to the best education possible and they yes. deserve to have professionals who know what they're doing in that space as well and they deserve our system like getting its act together which is i know you know so many of us have had experiences in the classroom are saying all right we have to strengthen the system itself and mm. that's our lifetime task i think but that's that's what our young people deserve is a system that works for them and that they should not be fighting the system itself we as system actors should not be fighting our own systems mm. uh and so i think that's you know the task if we choose to accept it that's kind of what i'm around here for yeah, curious. Can we can we dive into that a little bit further then? What does that look like for you at the moment? Oh, gee. Okay, that's a nice question. Uh, look, systems work, and I have heard uh, the awesome genius of some of your guests so far. Uh, you know, you're really, I know that you as a community are really thinking about systems, system-wide well-being, system-wide health, system-wide coordination. Uh, I know that you and I have spent years of our lives in care team meetings supporting students and you look around that table and there can be upwards of 12, maybe more people representing different aspects of a young person's care. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly trying to coordinate. And so, you know, that's massive. It's hard. Look, my my in my old age, I now describe systems work as like zillions of tiny micro moment actions, like zillions, like every email, every meeting, every text, every time you have to follow up on something 45 other times. Mm. That is all like tiny little carving out of the system or transformational moments within the system. And you don't see the ripples. Mm. Uh, you may see them over 10 years or 20 years. But it's a bit of faith that what you're doing is worth it. Uh, my other sort of highfalutin idea these days when I talk about systems work is similar to what I know is so familiar to a lot of your listeners around regulation for learning and bottom up and top down integration for learning, uh, the body, the brain, the mind. Um, I, I see the system in the same way now. 
that mm. the system will not improve unless we coordinate top down, bottom up. Bottom up is those of us hardworking uh, every day with young people. We know it works. We know it doesn't work. And then from the top down, we need to work toward a an authorizing environment. And the great news is here in Australia, I see really promising things happening in state governments, within Commonwealth uh, supports. It's not perfect and we have to work on it. But when I compare what's happening in our country compared to other countries that are like Australia around the world, this uh, notion of like neoliberal schooling, accountability, matrices, like all these things are making it so in other countries, they just don't have the bandwidth to develop the practices that we are here. Mm. So I do feel a responsibility that the um, a lot of eyes are on what's happening here because we have the opportunity to innovate in these spaces. Uh, so that to me is systems work. It's yeah. tireless. Absolutely. And it's huge. And it always sounds a little bit scary when we just start talking about the system, but I always think it's important to go there as well. Yeah, sure thing. But the BSEM team, 10 years, 10 years chipping away in the system as well. That, can we talk about what's happened with BSEM over the last 10 years? Where, how sure. did it begin and, and where are we at now? <laughs> yeah. You know what? It really does start with the Berry Street School. Um, and I'm just, I'm really glad that we started our conversation that way. And uh, then when we, we, you know, we had the opportunity to begin to share our work with other community schools. And I'm always very, um, I always want to be really conscious that our practice and research that underpins BSEM took place on Gunai Kurnai land and also Wurundjeri country. And that is important because these are communities that were doing their best and we wanted to learn from those communities and help the communities. And so what started with two schools uh, that were sort of our first pilot schools, that has now evolved to be schools in all states and territories. And so that is awesome. I also want to just um, I'll do shout outs, uh, particularly for our Victorian friends. Um, that we have communities like Frankston North. Uh, Frankston North is of great concern to many of us. Uh, and it's a community that contends with uh, generational inequity and uh, again, deserves all of the best of what we have. And these are schools now where every school, every teacher in Frankston North has learned the Bear Street education model. And now we're focusing on transitions. So as students go from primary school up to secondary college, what are some of the consistent things that the staff members are going to do to ensure that that transition is as uh, supportive and relational and re regulated for the young people as can be? Uh, and I can't, as a researcher, I'm putting on my researcher lecturer hat now because, you know, hi. Uh, I've learned that um, from our great team members that to be to be aware of liminal spaces, uh, transition spaces, spaces, and these spaces that are these transition spaces between, you know, one campus to the next or from classroom to classroom mm -hmm. or this idea of... Um, 
elevators and escalators like those are the unpredictable spaces and those are the spaces where we're uncertain and we're getting from a to b and so i think you know when we think about systems work uh i think it's pretty cool to think how do we bring that sense of rhythm and uh centeredness to those transition spaces i just want to give a shout out to andy on our team thank you for that prompt <laughs> <laughs> i mean you really just triggered something in me too that we yeah. had an elevator at the last school i worked at and so much happened in that elevator <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm i'm holding my head on my hands right now <laughs> because i oh, i mean every school i ever go to frankly here's like a secret trade secret i walk around the school and instantly my risk management head looks for all of the hidden spaces yeah. <laughs> like uh-oh that's a blind space you can't see back there <laughs> your like, elevators yikes and what yeah. did you do to oh uh, it was just always like young people loved getting in there and then always just um finding a way to um you know shut down the elevator and it's stuck between oh, floors God. and like we'd have to call someone out to get them out <laughs> i'm like i'm rolling up my sleeves i want to go over and help that situation <laughs> with <Ruby. laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it wasn't meant to be accessible to everyone but you know yeah, exactly. young people always love to find oh, a way <laughs> we, we call that the strength of persistence yeah <laughs> and it's creativity they always find a oh, way yes. it's great yes, it <laughs> yeah um so tom as well people may not know much about what you did before you came out to australia too and i always found that really interesting um like i learned so much from you based on the practice you'd done before you even arrived in australia too so i'm wondering if you wanted to go there and share a little bit about that Oh, yeah, sure thing. Um, so I was a teacher for many years in the Bronx and then a school leader in Harlem with a team of dedicated leaders who we we were able to start a school uh, back then and still today. They're called charter schools. I won't make this a lecture about charter schools. Uh, every school is very different. Uh, ours was special, I'd like to think. And uh, I had a really interesting opportunity because I know the communities that you travel in, Megan, uh, that I was uh, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time to become one of New York City's first what did not have a name. But now I realize I was a positive education leader uh, helping coordinate and implement positive education across the network of New York City schools. Uh, but back then, we just called it Marty stuff, <laughs> because really, truly, there wasn't a moniker for this collection of uh, ideas and evidence base. Uh, but I did have the opportunity to work very closely with uh, Marty Seligman and Angela Duckworth. And I was a research manager for Angela for a few years uh, as we thought about how to increase self-regulation and goal setting in our campus in Harlem. And uh, after really, really uh, falling very, um, well, I'll say falling in love, falling deeply with the research around what we could do around well-being and education and that well-being and education are integral to one another. They are the same thing in a lot of ways. And I always think uh, particularly for students that we serve at Berry Street, which I know so many, many campuses are across the country, that learning is well-being. Like they need the students, the young people have to feel like their time and effort is worth it and that they feel like they're uh, learning things that are useful and important to them. Um, that this notion of positive education and well-being education was a thing and then I met Barry Street and uh, some some folks from Barry Street came to see what we were doing in New York City. They made a long trip 
And what I learned from Barry Street was that I had a lot to learn and that Barry Street had been very much developing what has now become trauma-informed practice for organizations, for therapeutic work. And then I've had the opportunity to contribute to our knowledge in trauma-informed education and trauma-informed classrooms. Mm, and I really love that marriage between the trauma-informed practice and the posed. And I, I know, that. I know that that's been your your work and your journey since you've been here. And I know that's your PhD and your yeah. your book that you've recently <laughs> published you as well. Much. Yeah. So that was actually really impactful to me as a teacher at the time. That was uh, sort of where a lens really started to shift for me was when when we were meeting and you started introducing a lot of the posed work to us as a staff level first. And that was really important as well. That was a huge learning for me too, was when you first started rolling this out with us as a, a staffing team at the schools, was that we were doing it first at that level before we would bring it out to the young people. So we could live and breathe it and understand it ourselves as well and really embed it in our own practices before we started really thinking about applying it to the young people too. And I think that that's a really important that. point. Yeah. And it was a huge uh, uh, turning point for me too, because I'm, I'm sure that this is what influenced where my studies went and what I do as well. So I had no idea the posed world existed until you, uh, you came and you got us to look at our character strengths and really dive deep into the work from there. It was emerging. I mean, it continues to develop, uh, but there's, you know, it's, it's, it's both fun, rigorous, confusing, frustrating, expansive when you are learning a new sort of part of the science and the evidence. And, you know, this notion of trauma-informed positive education was trying to connect a single narrative for people like us mm. um, to say, look, if trauma-informed practice really can responsibly help us understand how to meet the needs for learning in healthy ways around one's self-regulatory needs or relational needs, and those are important priorities, not just for being a human being, but for learning things together in classrooms. I think that what drew me and maybe you, but I certainly want to hear from you as well, like, is that the well-being work reminds us of what's right with ourselves and mm -hmm. what's right with kids and what's strong about our kids. And I know that you've had many moments when you meet a young person, um, at any time in your career and then you ask them well what are your strengths and they look at you and they say i don't have any that's why i'm mm -hmm. here and i just think it's a moment of real truth that this person this little human has been on our planet and they don't know what's right with them and they don't know their strengths i mean is that is that I have to think that that's what's drawn you to this various field as well. Oh, completely. And and the strengths language part of it is such a huge part of it because ultimately what we're doing is we're allowing the people to start a new narrative from there um, yeah. as well. And it's so powerful to see that shift. And something that really jumped out to me too was always that work with Corey Keyes. So Corey Keyes' oh, yeah. dual mental health continuum is really impactful for me when I look at these young people in these schools because often we separate what's going on for them and go, they need a clinical intervention, they need mental health support, and that's where it begins and ends. And it's like, well, actually, yeah. no, that's that's not enough. That's nowhere near enough. And let's inject some wellbeing skills and resources there too. And let's watch things shift for them even further. And I think that that's a huge mindset. I appreciate that because even, you know, when we hear, when we as educators hear the word, oh, they need clinical intervention, well, that is probably correct and probably helpful. I mean, you know, I don't know every student out there, 
But also as an educator, if you hear that, you think, oh, well, I am not a clinician. I was trained mm. as a teacher person. So my VISTA is not mental health and, um, you know, psychosocial assessment. <laughs> like that's not that's not our practice. Our practice is something else. And I saw too many educators that I was supporting kind of give up a little bit and think, well, I'm not a clinician. I don't quite understand. We're waiting for a diagnosis. But we know that there was so much more we could do to create the therapeutic environment and to also create an environment where young people could meet their own needs in healthy ways that are appropriate for teachers to enact. And that was very much the centerpiece of what has become the Barry Street Education Model mm. as well. And the huge part of that too is it's so good for the teacher well-being then too because they don't feel powerless or like everything has to pause until that young person gets clinical support. It's like, well, actually, here's what I can do in the classroom and I can be confident in what I'm doing is going to actually help that young person. And I'm going to be less stressed as a teacher as well because I know there are things I can do and I'm going to see the young person slowly begin to improve in their well-being as well as we journey along together. So I think it's hugely impactful for teacher well-being as well if we can go there. Oh, yes. I mean, look, teaching is hard. <laughs> it is hard. It is. Teaching is hard. Teaching is not what it was 20 years ago. Mm. It wasn't what it was 10 years ago. Who the heck can remember before COVID? Mm. I don't, I mean, really, my mm. my, my mind, I, I'm sort of haunted by research that suggests that we, um, especially in Victoria, who experienced, you know, continuous lockdowns, blah, blah, um, our memory is similar to that of an incarcerated mm. person in terms of we don't have markers and, you know, sort of the rhythms of life. And so that creates a need for all of us to realize, okay, what does it mean to have a sense of workplace well-being and professional and personal well-being in 2024, um, where education is evolving, the young people are evolving, the world is more complex. And all of us are, I like to use a terminology from the social science research, um, uh, service rationing. All of us are trying to do a job to create equity in communities, and we don't have enough fill in the blank. We don't have enough time, money, consistent mm -hmm. staffing. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough materials or resources, yet we're still doing it. And that takes its toll vicariously uh, and, uh, you know, the secondary stress that we are exposed to day in and day out. So it's an incredible profession, which requires, I think, a revisioning of what we are doing every day. And I guess, again, I think I've said this already in the conversation, narratives, like the narrative for practice change, I think for hardworking people has to feel like a unified one. Uh, I get out of bed to take care of myself so I can be there for the students and I can be there for the community. And that's a singular journey toward well-being in the system. Now, I've just said a lot of big words, all it's strung together, but it's something that I think about when we're designing interventions and designing strategies for schools. Mm. It's an interesting one as well, because what you were saying there about getting out of bed and doing what you need to do so you can you know, bring your best to the young people as well. I'm curious, Tom, what your practice looks like working in this space, if you would like to go there as well, what, what's your wellbeing practice look like? Sure. Uh, I uh, Please forgive uh, me if you've heard me say this before, but I did, I'm, I'm trying to spread this out. Um, so, you know, 
me and you and I are sitting on a mountain of peer-reviewed publications in terms of what we read and what we follow, what we've underlined and highlighted. What I'm about to share has not come from any of those. <laughs> um, so I was uh, I was struggling in my own well-being, and I went to a physiotherapist, and I was very mean to her, and I said, "Don't tell me to find more work-life balance." And she said, "Okay, okay, okay." She, I said, "Because I love my work." And my work is very much my sense of accomplishment is part of my well-being. And um, she said, all right, find balance in the work. When you are sitting, sit in your center. When you're driving, remember to breathe. When you're speaking to people, remember how you're holding your body and to feel balanced in the conversation. So I just, I'm continuously sharing that with everybody because all of us are time poor. We all are very tired at the end of a long day. So I think it can be more stressful to be told, oh, you're not doing enough. You need to find more something in your life. But I do like, I, I think, yes, I can find more balance in myself as I do things throughout my day. You're speaking my language so much. Oh, here. good. <laughs> I'm really What's yours. <laughs> oh, I'm just really tired of the rhetoric of um, like prescribing teachers self-care almost, you know, it's like an extra thing <sighs> they have to go and do. Like, what's your self-care yeah. activity? Go and do it. And I, I'm yeah. way more about what can we do within our day, um, you know, that's just going to oh, help us oh, in yes. those like little micro yeah. moment shifts as well. And that's what I always often share with people, because ultimately what you touched on there is a really important point too, that the work is part of the well-being a lot of the time. We it hear it a lot of the time when we're hearing from um, a lot of these people, they're really passionate about what they do. And there's a lot of meaning generated from that. And that is really good for their well-being. But what we need to think about is how do we protect them to continue to show up and feel well at work? And yeah, a lot of it is around those micro moment shifts is um, what I always talk about when I'm working with teachers, essentially. I yeah. certainly agree. Look, well-being is a mosaic. It is a multifactorial concept. Choose your words here. It is a stained glass window. It's a mandala. It's a lot of things, right? And so I don't want anyone's own personal definition of well-being to be boundered. Uh, a lot of us access well-being through our animals. We mm -hmm. access it through nature. We access it through the fun staff barbecue or going to the movies with our friends. And I don't want to discount that. That's really important to build positive emotion, connection, and fill in perma blank H here. But that's an inside thing. <laughs> but I do, I do, I think where I, my own work, just like yours, is centered upon is yes, we need to do the positive emotion extras. If you don't have little boosts like that, then you won't remember what it feels like to feel well. But I am very, very much more focused on, you know, what does effective workplaces, what do they actually look like? So the mm. workplace itself is a system that's healthy, a system that creates healthy transitional spaces, a system that has uh, routines within it to support the rhythmic community or the rhythmic school. And um, two fun facts, I think, is <laughs> I, I wanted to like, boost as much research into this as possible. We understand from social service research that the more trauma-informed training one has, the more well-being training one has to even understand what trauma-informed well-being even is, then you are more aware and more conscious that that's even a thing. So I think that's step one. 
And then uh, one of my first studies, and I want to attribute this to my friends, also uh, co-authors and research supervisors, professors uh, Lee Waters and Professor Helen Stokes, that we were able to um, suggest that when teachers impacted by secondary and vicarious stressors feel more effective in the classroom with strategies for on-task learning and when they when teachers witness students setting ambitious goals for themselves that's when our own workplace well-being is truly fortified so this notion of professional practice and professional pedagogies relational pedagogies trauma-informed pedagogies those are integral to well-being itself and that's uh, for of the adult and we want to keep adults standing up connected and doing the work. And I have a sneaky feeling that that will be sort of the vista of where my research goes for a while. Mm, yeah, and I love that. And I actually am so glad you brought that up as well, because I was going to try and weave that in there somewhere around that, <laughs> that body of work that you and Lee Waters and, and Helen Stokes did, because that actually really influenced a lot of uh, a lot of my research and work that oh, I did thanks. when I was in my master's as well. Yeah, so that, that paper was really impactful to me as Thank well, you. looking at the meaningful element too of the work and how that was actually a buffering effect for teachers for their well-being, which yeah. is a huge thing. Yeah. And yeah. So I was just going to say, so I'm, I'm speaking a lot of the same language as you because I feel like there's a lot of uh, great practices we can do for our well-being in our personal lives, but it has to sort of marry a lot of other things too. It shouldn't just be, I'm doing this just for my well-being. It's like, I might be doing it because it creates joy and it creates connection and I'm just, it's part of my hobbies and my life anyway. Um, but I'm a huge fan of that idea of that boosting the positive emotion can actually take place in the workplace as well, based on the rituals and routines that we can create with our colleagues as well. And it can take just five seconds just to like have a great prompting question and have a bit of a laugh with the team in the morning um, or celebrate a birthday or whatever it might look like just really briefly can definitely boost the positive emotion for the day too. Joy is an important part of our work that we don't huge get to part. see a lot. Yeah, huge part. And celebrating those wins is a huge part of it too. Absolutely. Yeah. Young people can bring a smile to the face throughout the day and you need to savor it and acknowledge it when it happens. Yeah. Um, so, Tom, as well, I'm really interested to hear, like, because you just touched on the fact that there's going to be a bit more research going on. So is that something that you are still diving into? And what's that side of your life look like at the moment? Yes. Uh, we are always forging some new ideas. Uh I'd like to think now in terms of trauma-informed education, well-being-informed, strengths-based education. Um, we might be in generation two or three now in terms of, you know, there is an evidence base. We're building it. We are evaluating it, evaluating it uh, longitudinally. A lot of people and research teams around the world are picking this up. Australia, I think, is very much leading the way. Um, but there's a lot more work to be done. The future directions of this field depend on new spaces. I think specifically what really lights up our team are two specific, or uh, I should say two specific, three specific areas. One is what does trauma-informed education really mean when we look at uh, neurodiversity, uh, mm. disability and inclusion practices, Often I find that our special educators are very much speaking the same language or leading us uh, forward. And we wanna make sure that the connective practices make sense 
uh, in terms of um, supporting young people who are contending with both a learning need and also trauma's impacts perhaps on their family systems. Uh, that's one area uh, that is quite promising for us. The second is to ensure that culturally responsive education uh, and culturally responsive work out there in communities is very much learning from trauma-informed practices and uh, two ways learning. Mm. And so oh, we're very proud of the support that our teams have given to Aboriginal communities, Aboriginal educators, the side-by-side -side learning that's occurred uh, together in communities. And so I understand that perhaps the words trauma-informed practice are very much a Western way of looking at things, and that is not trying to prioritize that, but to understand the, um, the real exchange of ideas and the valuing of uh, First Nations culture and uh, our super diverse schools uh, in many, many uh, locations across our world now. What does it mean to have a trauma-informed, culturally responsive practice to value the strengths and uh, the strengths and real opportunities for all of our young people? I think that's a vista. That's exciting for us. Mm, that's huge. Can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we're working hard. So, Tom, time flies when we're recording a podcast. We're coming close to the end of our time together. And as I let you know, we do have five questions that we sort of dive into at the end of a podcast. But before we do, I just wanted to see, was there anything else you wanted to touch on before oh we go Oh, my gosh. There? I am ready for these questions. I will admit that I've heard some of them in your prior episodes. But also, I just want to say, of course, already, thank you. I mean, you've really posted an opportunity for uh, for me to share so much of our work already. So thank you. Oh, I'm just so glad to have you here. It's It's been quite a long time of knowing each other. And I, I think um, there's so much people can learn from you. So I was really excited that thank you're you. keen to jump on. All right, well, let's dive into those questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, um, don't stress about the answers too much. Just go gut answers. And um, But if you've heard them, you know what's coming. <laughs> so Tom, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Oh, that's easy. I wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> I was the bossy oldest brother in the family and forced my siblings to sit up straight and check out library books from our family library. And uh, my mom was a teacher and I didn't even realize that really until I became a teacher. And I remember calling her saying, okay, now I know why you did all those things you did in our home. So I was a very blessed uh, blessed to be raised uh, as a teacher and to spread the good word now. <laughs> I love that. So it's always been the path. <laughs> yes, it always was. <laughs> the second question is, what are your two top values? And you can only choose two. Oh, gee. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to get serious because I care about this a lot. I value democracy. And I mm. never thought as a dual citizen, I never, ever thought that that would be the rally and cry in the 2020s, that to fight for democracy, to fight for all of what that really means around equity and to mm -hmm. fight dominator values, authoritarianism around the world, that education is this thing to teach collective values and collective respect. So that's my first long-winded mm. answer. Uh, 
The second I have learned is to value culture and to understand and see culture as a strength in communities. Oh, I love that. Thank you. All right. The third one is a little bit funny. So if you've heard, hopefully (laughs) hopefully you're ready for this one. If you were going to have a boxing fight, what would be your walkout song? Yeah. Okay. So I have two answers. So, and I'm allowed to have two. Okay. Thank you. And I want you to answer this too, of course. Um, My first is I I'm like, I'm obsessed with the breeders and so cannonball. And I have this like baseline in my head as I walk out to things. And then the guitar kind of runs up and I'm like, yes, I'm ready for things. Uh, I also, my favorite song in the whole wide world is freedom by George Michael. And on some level I'm pretending to be Linda and Christy Turlington in the middle of the video. I could say that working. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, And what's yours, Megan? What's your fight song? Well, I actually did have a boxing fight with a walkout song a couple of years ago yeah so it was part of the thing so um i actually it's pretty funny i walked out to gangster's paradise (laughs) but it was all kind of tied in with like the theme of i had a fight name and it was corcoran punishment so it's kind of blending the whole you know tough teacher thing together and yeah so it was all a bit of a joke but it worked uh and you've earned it by the way Um, so the fourth question, if you could collaborate with anyone in the field, dead or alive, who would it be? Cool. Uh, I am very much inspired by uh, Rudolf Steiner. Mm. And uh, I often think in my journey through Steiner education and Steiner pedagogy, gosh, what would it have been like to be in 1919 in Stuttgart, Germany, when Steiner was gathering the first college of teachers to create a small school that was really in response to factory and industrialization in communities. And I just think, oh my gosh, that was over a hundred years ago. And what does it mean now for us as we are very much trying to address factory education AI and everything else that is mechanized around us. So that's one fantasy. I do have a second answer though. Um, I am like uh, collaboration with anyone. Uh, the artist Jenny Holzer is uh, a favorite of mine. So amazing. If you're out there, Jenny, and listening to this, I am here to collaborate with you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I hope your wish comes true. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> And the last question is, if you could make one recommendation as a step that everyone could take towards healing, what would it be? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Chris Peterson, but you'll have to remind me, Megan, if I'm incorrect, that really discussed that well-being is about other people and connecting to things greater than yourself. Am I correct on that? You are correct. You're I actually played a video that? a video of him saying those exact words to my uh, Monash students very recently. There you go. I mean, we certainly attribute this to the giants that have come before us. And uh, Chris certainly is one of those people. And I, I, I've always thought about that. And this notion that, you know, we'll define perhaps in the well-being research is, you know, meeting one's spiritual needs is connecting to something greater than yourself. So if you belong to a faith tradition or that faith tradition is part of your own rhythms or your family or community rhythms, and that's part of your well-being. And for those of us who have perhaps sacred rhythms for ourselves, whether that's in nature or being with our animals, for me, it's around being in art museums, I have to say that my favorite 
are it's not an art museum but it's close to one my favorite interior space in australia is the um the high court building in canberra <laughs> and uh i think i'll end with this when i i was in canberra as a tourist and this i was not going to go in the high court building and uh this man ran out and said to his wife who was watching their baby um oh my gosh you got to go in there it's like tron meets blade runner in there <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get in there. <laughs> and so I just, I was in that high court building thinking, yes, I'm in my like concreted dynamic architecture environment. <laughs> so that, that gives me well-being, connecting to environments and the genius of uh, architects who are doing it well for us. <laughs> so interesting. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been Thank such you. a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, wonderful listeners, for making it right to the end of the podcast. We appreciate you. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe, give us a rating. We'll be dropping a new episode roughly once per fortnight, so you can stay tuned for the next one. Thank you.